Hello, everyone. Hello. I am Neil Pollock, the Lord of All Men, the greatest living American writer, and the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much, much more. We have a fantastic show for you this week on the Book and Film Globe podcast. We're going to talk to contributor Greg Ford about the new Lord of the Rings show, The Rings of Power. We're also going to have a report from the Venice Film Festival. Book and Film Globe covers the world, and we have critics at all corners watching movies and telling you about them. Cabe Jolinas will be here to talk about his adventures in Venice. But first, we're going to talk about the important and dangerous practice of review bombing, which is giving TV shows a hard time online lately. Jake Harris will be back to talk about that with us right after this. It's hard for a pop culture property to catch an even break on the internet these days because of a phenomenon known as review bombing. If a certain kind of online audience doesn't like a show, they will bomb Amazon and IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes with fan reviews that drive the ratings way down. And sometimes it's just because the show is bad, but a lot of times there are other uh, motivations behind it. And Jake Harris wrote a a piece uh, for us about review bombing, and he's here to talk to me about it. Hello, Jake. Hello, Neil. Yes, so review... So there have been a couple of real prominent instances of review bombing lately yeah the first uh, big one recently has been with uh, the new amazon prime lord of the rings show uh, rings of power um so that debuted uh, and it has a as of this writing and i just double checked it um eight or 6.8 out of 10 rating on imdb which amazon also owns um and then over at rotten tomatoes it's got a uh 84% fresh rating among critics, but then if you look at the audience score, it's only uh, 39%. Yeah. Um, too and, uh, there's, no way, there's no way that <laughs> only 39% of the people who have watched Rings of Power like it. I've seen it. <laughs> right, yeah. Like the, the, the people, from what I've seen, it's a very much a, like if you like it, you love it and you're in that camp, but if you don't like it, like you really, really don't like it. Sure. Um, Something in the 70s, fine. Something in yeah. the high sixties, maybe, but like thirty nine percent. That's that that strikes me as toxic fandom. And then there's also the um, the She Hulk uh, series on uh, Disney Plus has been extremely divisive. Yes, yeah, that one. Uh, so the Amazon uh, Lord of the Rings one actually happened after the show debuted, and then they had to issue a moratorium on uh, reviews. There was a seventy two hour waiting period for IMDb and they're not showing any reviews on Amazon at all because it happened after the show was uh premiered. But for She Hulk it was uh pretty much like even before the first episode aired, people were giving one star reviews on IMDb and talking about it on social media. Um and people did that also for uh Miss Marvel um and some other those two were the big prominent Disney Plus ones really. Um where people were kind of just like talking shit about it before it even aired. Yeah, you know, and there there you have superhero shows with prominent, strong female leads. Uh, and in the case of, you know, I guess, leads of color for the, you know, I talked yeah, about Lonnie yeah. is, I don't think that she's, you know, she's sort of, um, I don't know what her background is, but, you know, She-Hulk is certainly green. 
Um, and, you know, and then Ms. Marvel uh, is, a, is a show about a Pakistani American superhero. And I mean, I'll say this, like in terms of quality, I felt like Ms. Marvel was, was better overall than She-Hulk. She-Hulk is a very strange and kind of cheesy show. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it has its charms, you know, but it's like, again, like, so what really is going on here? You know, are, 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 is this Gamergate all over again or are fans legitimately annoyed at the way these franchises are going? Um, from what I've seen from Lord of the Rings is it's it's pretty much the the loudest detractors are people who have issues with uh, either like the acting or the pacing of the first two episodes of the show. Um, and then there are other people that are saying that, um, you know, you have a Jeff Bezos, Amazon style budget and it's being spent on just like CGI landscapes and the score for the background. And there's not really any recognizable actors uh, to it. Um, but then there's also the small uh, faction of people who are um, up in arms about the fact that there are people of color in uh, the dwarf and elf race, specifically uh, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, and because there were no people of color, hardly, I don't think at all, in the Peter Jackson movies. Um, and so people are saying, you know, even comments <laughs> on our own site are saying that it's, you know, it's not true to Tolkien's vision uh, and that he would be, you know, sad to see what his work has become. Uh, and even Elon Musk has, you know, tweeted about um, how he said Tolkien would be turning in his grave to watch this show. Um, I so that, I, I don't know. Uh, I, yeah. I think Tolkien would be taking a bath in, in Pound Sterling <laughs> if, this show were, if this show were happening during his lifetime. Um, and he would also... Mm probably like George R. R. Martin is with the Game of Thrones show, it'd be a consulting producer. You know, it's like, so it's hard yeah. to say really uh, exactly. You know, and that's the th this is a tough line, right? Because on the one hand, you know, there are things to criticize about some of the performances uh, and some of the script choices and some other things about the Lord of the Rings show and certainly about um, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. You could you write a thesis about <laughs> strange choices in that show. Um, if you, if you really wanted to, but, um, you know, on the other hand, it's like, so you can't really ban people from expressing their opinions about it on sites that are set up for it. But on the other hand, like, you know, how legitimate are a lot of these opinions, right? What does that even mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, because just it's, it, and it seems like this is always going to be something that just keeps cropping up you know, more and more, especially with genre film or TV shows, and especially with stuff where it's people of color or it's women in the lead. Um, and so now it just kind of feels like this is just another hurdle that each new show has to overcome. And so Amazon has is dealing with it by, you know, you just can't review it on its own platform right now. Yeah, I mean, um, but at the same time, like, there's nothing you can do. I mean, if you if there's anything that exemplifies the pop culture of this moment, it's that there are going to be strong women of color kicking ass <laughs> in every show. Like, there, mm -hmm. I, I can't think of a single show that involves kicking ass where that's not the case. So it's like, so it's like, okay, you either have to get used to it, or you know, I guess you could review bomb it. All right. So I guess my last question is: Is there anything that can be done about review bombing, or should we we just we just have to learn to live with it? 
Um, I hope we we don't have to to learn to live with it. Uh, but it looks like that's what we're gonna have to do. And now at this point, I guess just like I, you know, it's at the end of the day, like Lord of the Rings, She Hulk, Miss Marvel, like they're all, you know, I'm sure that it's an important representation to the people that are seeing them on screen. But at the end of the day, like it's a fantasy show about elves and dwarves and hobbits and you know orcs. Uh, and Miss Marvel is a comic book show, and She-Hulk is about a lawyer who turns into a big, green, angry person. Like, it's all heightened forms of reality, and investing that much into something to where you'd be that angry to leave a one-star review on IMDb is just absurd to me, so everyone just needs to calm down. <laughs> all right, Jake Harris tells everyone to calm down, and I agree with him as someone who gets worked up over pop culture. It's good advice, nice Zen advice. And up next, we are going to not review Bomb. We're just going to straight up review Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Jake, thanks so much for talking to me. All right. Thanks so much. In the latest edition of No Intellectual Property Ever Dies, there is a new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon Prime, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, a very distant prequel to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, featuring some of the same characters, some of the same places, but it's also very different. Uh, and we have our resident Tolkienologist, Greg Ford, or GL Ford, as he's known on the site. He wrote a piece about The Rings of Power, which has aired two episodes, and he is here to talk to me about it. Hello, Greg. Neil, how's it going? It's going well, and like you, I have also watched The Rings of Power. I am not as much of a Tolkien expert as you are, but I, you know, I'm familiar enough with the world. I've seen the movies, I've read the books, you know. And you, um, you know, you you had what I thought was a pretty moderate take on this. Like the the range of opinions about The Rings of Power has been like have gone from it's a fabulous, you know, fantasy world that. I can't wait to inhabit for the next 10 years of my life to it's an absolute you know nightmare um, and a desecration of Tolkien's legacy. And also why are there black elves? You know, to you. <laughs> that, well, you know, they're, they're called actors. Right. Right. So you didn't fall on the, you know, you're, you're not, you're, you're not annoyed that there are black elves or black Hobbit Harfoots. Hobbits. No, no, um, not at all. I mean, certainly there, you know, a lot of people talked about how Tolkien set up Middle Earth to be, as it were, a mythology of England. But he didn't say that himself. It was his biographer Humphreys who said that. So putting word, he put words in Tolkien's mouth. So you can cast who you like. Real problem with the show, as you put it, is that it's. Not that it's multicultural, which is obviously not a problem in this show at, at all. Um, it's that it doesn't really uh, ring true to sort of Tolkien's legacy and sort of the moral complexities of his work. Um, yes, and that it, the moral complexities of his work are certainly missing here. No one really seems to be making moral choices. They're making counter counter-social choices. They're choosing to go against, say, their kings or their peers or what have you but they're not really these choices aren't really set up as moral choices 
I mean, I do a lot of saying so far in this uh, piece that I wrote. And yes. I think maybe eventually they'll get to moral choices, especially once we bring in Numenor and the nine rings that, well, we know what becomes of the holders of the nine rings, even if you've just seen the movies that Peter Jackson made. Um, they become Lord Sauron's dark riders, you know? They're little better than ghosts in a way but but right they're corrupted corrupted by the by ultimate power yeah the, that's the thing the show this is a slow burn i mean it has a broad range of characters and it, it basically is spending with a couple of exceptions most of its time just introducing you to these characters i mean the the main character you could argue is galadriel who is uh, an elf warrior princess, whatever, who um, is in the Lord of the Rings mythology, elves live forever. And here she's played you know, as a sort of a, a younger, uh, tougher version than, you know, than the sort of ethereal wise Kate Blanchett of the movies. Uh, and, um, and then you have a variety of, and then Elrond, another elf is also in it as in a, in a younger version, but the rest of the characters are, you know, they're completely By new. Large, yes. I mean, I find it kind of silly that they went and, turn Galadriel into this warrior maiden. But I don't know, I guess they had to drive the plot somehow. But there's a little too much kung fu for my tastes. Um, yeah, there's a lot of action, you know, but there, you know, sort of the, the central action piece before the opening credits even run, you know, Galadriel fights a snow troll, which admittedly was a pretty cool sequence yeah. uh, from sort of, if you're looking at, if you're looking for a sure. cheesy, fun action fantasy romp, I was like, yeah, this is actually pretty good. Uh, but I understand that if you're looking for uh, the moral seriousness of the Lord of the Rings, you know, Galadriel doing somersaults and stabbing a snow troll is not exactly, not exactly <laughs> like what Tolkien had in mind when he was writing the books. No, and... You know, the token trust, the token estate made a bundle of money off of this. And I think so far they probably don't feel great about it. But again, so far, we'll see where it goes. I watched this show and I am always ready to jump down the throat of something that I think is egregiously bad. Like the Wheel of Time that aired on Amazon. That was, that was horrifyingly bad. This is not bad. You know, when really, when it comes down to it, you know, it's like, like you mentioned, like a lot of the scenery is beautiful. Like the dwarf kingdom, the underground dwarf kingdom is gorgeously rendered. And I think would look fantastic on a big screen with, you know, with the exception of, let's say, I, I feel like that, that, um, the elf who's like in the tunnels fighting monsters, he's pretty wooden to, to be frank, but like most of the main actors have some, you know, some spirit to them and some zing and, you know, and, and I just feel like the set pieces are pretty exciting and it's paced fairly well. I mean, it's, it, like you said, it's, if you want a ripping good fantasy show, you won't be disappointed here. True. This is very true. But if you're looking for something that's faithful to Tolkien, you're not going to find it here. A lot of Tolkien fans disagree with me, but, um, we can debate that in person, I suppose, uh, because, you know, we're just going to flame each other over the interwebs. Yeah, do it at the convention when you're all <laughs> dressed up like wizards. <laughs> That's it. 
when, when, when the, the, the only time when it's acceptable to have hairy feet in public. All right, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power on Amazon Prime now. Geo Ford has written about it, and maybe we'll have you uh, at the end of the season, we'll revisit it. You can do another piece, and you can say, you can, you can give a more sort of thorough uh, opinion about whether Tolkien's vision uh, was realized. Because then I won't have to say it so far anymore. Well, except that there'll be a season two, but you, I feel like they're going to give season one a beginning, a middle, end, and a, and a relative end with a good cliffhanger or two. I'm hoping so. All right. Greg, take it easy. What, what do they say? They don't say may the force be with you in uh, Lord of the Rings. Is there some phrase? Uh, may the wind be always at your back. May the wind always be at your back, Greg. Fall Film Festival season is upon us, and Book and Film Globe is covering the globe. We have Stephen Garrett in Toronto starting this week, and we'll be talking to him next week about that. But we also had a correspondent in Venice for the Venice Biennial. Uh, Cave Jolinas, a frequent contributor, was in Venice. First of all, Cave, I want to ask, why were you in Venice? <laughs> what were you down? Yeah, no. You know, you're a college student. <laughs> What are you doing? Yeah, there? this this was one that I didn't anticipate happening until June. So I'm actually studying abroad in France right now. And in June, I thought, okay, when is the next time I will have to just be able to go to Venice and not have to spend 10% of my living to get there? So I looked up some stuff and I think... Venice is a really interesting festival because they have a lot of good deals for people who are either university students or working in the cinema cinema sector. So I basically looked into that and just decided this will be the time. I might as well just experience these movies and see what the Venice Film Festival has to offer. Yeah, I mean, that, why not? I would do the same thing. Well, you're already in Europe. You might as well go. And, you know, well, what was it like? I mean, was this the first time you've been to a major film festival? So this is the first time I've been to a major film festival outside of North America. I've been lucky enough to attend TIFF uh, New York in the past, um, and I've covered a couple of festivals virtually. But I, this is just so completely different to me. I think that, first off, the, the most evident thing, in my opinion, is the prices, whereas you could pretty much see everything at the festival for an accreditation pass, which is equivalent to the cost of what one would pay for three tickets at the New York Film Festival. So it's just this idea of having so much accessibility and a lot kind of carved out just for people with these passes to be able to see movies that had just premiered. You're not with the stars, you don't get the Q&A, but you still get to see these movies with a crowd of 1,900 people. And I, the way I was describing it is it kind of feels like a music festival because you have to go through security, but you enter this area on Lido that is just people there to either watch movies or go to the red carpet. There's these outdoor food vendors, people, a lot of young people in groups sitting, smoking, drinking, and just like taking breaks between movies, talking about movies. So it's just this whole separate world in yeah. this whole separate world because Lido is so separate from Venice. Yeah, that sounds horrible. So, um, <laughs> wow. Uh, so, all right. So the two most sort of newsworthy moments of Venice, uh, what you, you did not get to see, there was a, Brendan Fraser's eight-minute standing ovation or ten-minute standing ovation after the uh, premiere of The Whale, 
And then you had uh, all the uh, hoo-ha publicity surrounding the Don't Worry Darling, which you're going to write about us for next week. But you did see a bunch of really cool stuff. So let's talk about some – let's talk about your top two, first of all. Um, there is a new Kate Blanchett starring movie uh, called Tar. Yes. This – I think the power of Tar is the fact that I saw it at 8.30 a.m. without a coffee. and was completely entranced for 100 and I think 58 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. It's a really, really long movie. And it's not a particularly fast-paced movie. It's really slow burning. And the kind of slow burning where you can – slow burning, sorry, when you can feel a sizzling from start to finish. And I think that's mostly – I wouldn't say mostly, actually. I would say it's pretty much half the script and half Kate Blanchett's performance where she's really able to capture the emotional fragilities of this character and crescendo them into something that becomes monstrous by the finale and has you on the edge of your seat in fear and anticipation. The, ca- and I, the character is a, is a composer, um, like a very passionate a composer who uh, is going through some sort of, sort, sort of breakdown. No, exactly. And I... I think the way that this composer is built up and kind of projected at the beginning as this figure and the way that knowing all of this, they do it as a New Yorker interview where basically her character is interviewed by um, a prominent interviewer and I believe Berlin, if I'm not mistaken, kind of just shows this ego and really puts it on the spot. And then you see the various ways in which this ego is completely changed as the film goes along. So it's very fascinating. Well, and this is directed by Todd Field, who is sort of an, uh, almost an indie director. He hasn't made a movie in quite a while. His, his, maybe his most well-known movie is In the Bedroom, which is kind of a, like a psychological thriller starring Keanu Reeves. But that was that was quite a ways back now. Uh, and and this is this is way in a way bigger scale than anything he's worked before. Yeah, I've actually never seen any of his other movies. And yeah, there've only been a couple. So it's just interesting to see that he's he's back with this, and this is you know a a prominently mentioned awards contender, especially for the performance. Yeah, and I'm I'm super glad. I believe it's being released by Focus in the states, but I think it's only theatrical exclusive. Which I think this is kind of the type of slow burn movie where I don't think it would work watching it on streaming. You really need to be in the theater and feeling the atmosphere for it to kind of have its emotional payoff, especially as the stakes get higher. All right, so that's Tar. Tar is not the name of the sticky substance, but that's actually the name of the last name of the Kate Blanchett character. Uh, the other, the other thing, uh, the other one you put on your sort of highly recommended list for us was a, it's a TV series. It's a five-hour TV series uh, from Lars von Trier, um, the the uh, Danish director who made Breaking the Waves and many many other movies, but he is a, a, a kind of a hospital paranormal hospital drama called the kingdom um that uh is is concluding i guess with this with this five-parter and you love this yeah so i had not heard about the kingdom until i saw the venice lineup i did not know that this was the third season following the first two in the 90s basically the kingdom is this hospital in denmark that is haunted by spirits ghosts but most importantly and it becomes really really clear really early on just a lot of inner workplace drama and these really eccentric scenarios that I've tried to explain this show to multiple people and just giving them plot summaries is 
the most fascinating thing to me because I don't think that they believe me when I explain what happens in this show because some of the things are just so completely absurd. But I think it is such an interesting showcase of Von Trier's dark humor. And I think the reason Exodus is so interesting to me is because Von Trier's at a very different stage in his career than he was in the 90s. So to see movies like Melancholia and um, The House That Jack Built and Nymphomaniac and how those movies have influenced the way in which Von Trier deals with humor, but also this horrifying nature of life and death and the connection between the two, I think is so fascinating. All right. So that's the kingdom Exodus, which you describe in your review as just Grey's anatomy with paranormal activity mixed in. Sounds like, uh, sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to skip down a little bit uh, to your, uh, your good, but not great section, which was fairly substantial. Uh, there's a film from Luca Guag. Guadino, Guada, how do you pronounce that? Guada, I think it's Guadagnino, but I'm not entirely sure. Luca Guadagnino is a, a cannibal movie, which I, I, I am not particularly interested in, but it's a Timothée Chalamet um, vehicle, so it's going to have some a sort of a built-in audience. Yeah, this is... Guadagnino's movies either work for me a lot or kind of just like I'm mildly indifferent about them, this was one that I just didn't find myself connecting with as much. I thought that Russell and Chalamet are both really interesting in these roles and bounce off of each other. But I thought that a lot of the narrative felt a little too prolonged. Um, it is this road trip film, but some of the time I found myself kind of dozing off a little bit. I will say that there is a Your Silent Face by New Order Needle Drop that won me over a lot in this movie because I think it's very, very well placed. But it is one of these films that is again i believe being released theatrically and it is one of the movies that you have to see in a movie theater i don't know if i mentioned this in my piece but my crowd was very reactive but silent so i was just looking around seeing everyone like covering their mouths but their eyes wide open and i think that that really testifies the amount of gore in this movie but all right so so it's a gore it's a gory cannibal road trip love story yeah yeah that would be the best way to describe it where i feel like it's Call Me By Your Name meets Suspiria yeah. for those who have seen Guadagnino's those other are, movies. Those are, those are his two most recent movies, Call Me By Your Name, um, which is sort of a, this is a you know, gay love story. Um, and Suspiria was a, definitely it was a remake of a Dario Argento horror movie. So uh, he obviously has a kind of a surreal horror background. All right. So that's Bones and All. Uh, and that's going to be coming out soon. And then um, sort of, of even broader interest is the Noah Baumbach um, adaptation of White Noise. Uh, the the cinematic adaptation of uh, Don DeLillo's probably best known novel. You know that's that's a book that came out in 1985 and has sort of long been considered something that was impossible to film. You know, mm-hmm. it's like who, like who is going to try to make a white noise movie? It's such a it's such an ideas based book. And and but Noah Baumbach has done it. Uh, stars Adam Driver. Uh, and uh, tell us uh, tell us about that. You've you've seen it. Yeah, so uh, I I was pretty indifferent on this one. I have read Delilo's book. Um, I wouldn't say I'm like a giant fan of it, but I do respect it quite a bit. And I I respect Bombach for trying. I think that capturing the satire of consumer America is something that, if done wrong, is really, really bad to watch on screen. And I don't think White Noise is bad. I think it's really interesting and takes... A lot of risks that I don't think people will appreciate as much unless they 
know the source material at least a little bit. Is it set in the eighties? It is set in the eighties, okay. and it's very like. If you haven't read the book, it will probably seem so tonally abrupt and narratively insane because it kind of does have these three really defined sections that have things to do with each other but feel really different. And I think that I I really enjoyed Adam Driver's performance in this. I saw some things on Twitter and I don't know how many people agree that it's like not an amazing performance, but I actually think he captures the spirit of I think the main character's name is Jack, if I'm not mistaken. Jack I think he Gladney. does a great job. Jack Gladney, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It's been a while since I've read White Noise, but you know, it's it, it's that's the kind of book that myself included, like the you know, all the people in your uh writing class who thought they were smart were talking about <laughs> how amazing it was. Mostly dudes. Uh I mean and I was never like the biggest fan of it, but I but I read it, you know, I read it sort of in its time. Mm-hmm. I'm from that time, and so it's, it's 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 bizarre to me that there's a white noise movie, and I'm wondering like what's the real audience for this? I mean, how many of these sort of smarty pants MFA guys are there going to be? <laughs> are, yeah, and I a few hundred thousand, but that's not like you know it's it's not it, it doesn't strike me as something that's going to be you know a big smash. And as a Netflix film, I'm very curious about this because I don't know if the 140 million dollar budget thing is confirmed, so I won't comment on that. But the idea of this being a, I believe theatrical, but then streaming release for something like this is a little a little bit surprising to me. To say yeah, and it's so mostly a Netflix, it's mostly a Netflix film that they're putting in some theaters in some cities in order to get awards uh, nominations. Mm-hmm. You know, this is things that only go to Netflix. I, I don't know. Maybe they've changed it, but like at least last. Up until last year, you, you had to have screen it somewhere. So it'll be on screens in New York and L.A. and probably Chicago and a few other places. And otherwise, you can watch it on Netflix. I wanted to talk about real quick. You, you put a few – you had a few um, – you were kind to call some of these movies disappointments. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about Bardo uh, from Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, who is a very significant director. Um, and this is sort of – you know, he's a, a, an art house Oscar winning uh, director. And so when you are that person, you get to make your version of uh, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, right? So this is set in Mexico uh, and it's like three and a half hours of, of, of a director regaining his sense of identity. Sounds mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I I want to preface this by saying visually, I think this film is incredible. There's one sequence in an airport terminal that is like absolutely mind-boggling. I think that all that jazz and eight and a half are movies I adore. All that jazz is one of my favorite movies of all time. But there is a certain element of those films that they're not easy to make. And if you mess up one thing about it, it can come off as just super egocentric and self-indulgent. And that's the problem with Bardo, in my opinion, is that it's almost too on the nose, whereas I feel like it applies to one person only, and that's in your two. Whereas in eight and a half and in all that jazz, I'm not, I don't have any affinity to those characters, but I can connect with them in some aspects. But this one I thought was all over the place. There's this I didn't mention this in my um, in my piece, but there's this whole I wouldn't say subplot because the way this plot is kind of built doesn't really make room for subplots. Everything's kind of just happening at once. But there's this whole idea about national identity that I thought was super interesting, but a little too underdeveloped and kind of pushed aside in favor of these, like, even more personal ideas. 
So I just, for three hours, too, in the second row of a at least 50-seat movie theater, I just found it to be, like, kind of a mind-numbing experience that once you realize you're not vibing with it and not really picking up on some of the things that he's throwing down, you just begin to see all of these cracks below the surface. At least when you were done, you got to go have wine and, you know, <laughs> eat snacks on the beach. Yeah, I mean, the magic of the Venice Film Festival is you walk out and you just look at Lido, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. You look at the canals, you see stars rolling up on their boats, and it's just like, you're kind of reminded that you're in this magical place again. All right, well, lucky you for getting to go. Thank you so much for talking to me about it and for reporting on it for us. Have fun. Thank you for having me. Have fun on the continent, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Kavay Jolinas, for talking to us about your struggles at the Venice Film Festival. Sounds like you had a terrible time. Hope you don't have to go back there anytime soon. Also, thanks to Jake Harris for talking to me about the practice of review bombing, which you should not do. You're allowed to have criticisms of shows. You're allowed to express those criticisms online, but make sure they're fair and don't drop bombs. Also, thanks to Greg Ford for not dropping bombs, but still criticizing The Rings of Power, the new Lord of the Rings show on Amazon Prime. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. This has been the Book and Film Globe podcast. We will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com. Audio Hopper.